Welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. Good morning. How are we all today? Excellent. So those of you that are astute, got your ears on, will notice by my accent, I'm not a local. That's right. I'm from Ellenbrook. Um, so I, uh, I've been asked to come down and share by Josh, and Josh gave me two things, whatever's on my heart, or I could share my story. I thought, that's great. Those are two my two favorite subjects. Um, so I prayed, and I thought, I better ask God what he wants to be shared this morning. And so uh, I, I'm going to go down the avenue of what he wants, if that's all right with you. Father God, Lord, we thank you that we can be here in this place to worship you. We thank you, our King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Father God, I praise you. Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son that he came, that we can be reunited with you into eternity, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that when he left, you did not leave us alone, but you grifted us your spirit as that ever-present help in time of need. Lord, I praise you this morning, that as I stand, it is your people this morning, that it is your will that is done, in Jesus' precious name, amen. You can't help but notice in the world today that in the last six to seven months, the world has been completely turned upside down by COVID-19. It's pretty evident. Um, we are living in on the planet with more freedom than anybody else. This is the only place you can drive for two and a half days without hitting a restriction, okay? You can't do that anywhere else on the planet. It just doesn't happen. Um, but it's been really interesting because I look at something like COVID and I hear stories across the world. Now, for those of you that don't know, I'm involved in ministry, right, of interacting with different denominations, with different groups of people, right, the way through across the entire spectrum of business, government, and all these different spaces and the churches and different things. So I'm always hearing and picking up on different things that are going on and what God's saying across his body. And there are stories across the world, regardless of where you go and what you read, that talk about this being everything from the judgment to the end times to all sorts of stuff going on. Right, right okay, I personally, I kind of put that down a little bit, but I cannot deny the fact that we read Colossians 1.16, which says, all things that are created have been created by him and for his purposes. Right? If you back that up with John 10.10, 10, there isn't anything in the world that the enemy can, can create. The enemy can only destroy. Okay, So that means that if COVID-19 exists, then it exists because it was created by God. Now that's really tough for some people to understand, but if that's true, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I just want to make this clear. My opinion of this book is that this is the true testimony of God that this is absolute truth, and this is the lens through which I view what's going on in the world. So that's why I try and look for what's the truth about what God's saying. And whether you believe that bit or not, you cannot deny that whether it's, God has allowed this to happen to the world. God still, he's never been dethroned. 
He's bigger than COVID. And I think it's one of the interesting things. So my heart then goes, okay, God, if you're in place and this is something that you've allowed to happen to this world, why? What, what is it that you want? What is it that has mean, meant that you wanted or you allowed this much disruption to happen to your church? When Josh was speaking in Ellenbrook, a few fact that the church mentioned, tends to monitor the ABCs. Yeah, and he was talking about um, the accounts, the the business, the buildings, and the um, and the community, wasn't it? Attendance, uh, attendance, building, and cash. Yeah, and interestingly enough, whilst the attendance of churches in the physical had dropped, almost every church that went online saw their numbers increase. Right? Being used for a Sunday service, we're being more frequently used during the week for other things to reach the community. Okay? And cash seems to almost universally have increased in giving across the body through this time. And none of that makes sense when we build our, our kind of original model. So we go, right, okay, God, your intention was not to destroy the church, your intention was something else. Okay? And without fail, the story are this incredible stories of the growth of discipleship across the body. Now, how many people here are involved in a life group? Okay, Josh, do you want to take note of the ones that didn't put their hands up? Um, <laughs> discipleship is an interesting thing because it makes us all rethink. See, when it's about building church and we're talking about the ABCs and we go, right, attendance, well who's even rocking up on his day off, and say, that's your job. Yeah, it's really, really easy. You go, that. well, that's the pastor's job, attendance. That's your problem. I'll rock up and do my bit, but attendance is your problem, okay? Managing this building, that's your problem. What's that got to do with me? I just come and use the toilets and sit in a seat. You know, it's beyond that. I can contribute a little bit to the cash, but that, it's really easy to make building church but when we start saying, well, actually, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus, we go to Matthew 28. In 18, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end. Go and make disciples. See, when it starts to be about going and making disciples, it's really a lot harder for us to actually just point and go, well, that's the pastor's job. How many people here consider themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ? Okay. Do you know who Jesus was speaking to when he said the Great Commission? He was speaking to his disciples. So therefore, if he was speaking to his disciples, it's not the pastor's job. It's all of our job to make disciples. It shifts the balance. We, we read in the Bible that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. There's loads of you here. It's the other interesting thing that's coming through about COVID. Where... God is really breaking up the ground 
that this is a season when seed planting is easier than ever because the ground has been found. Every system that the world relies on, every system that man has built, every system that man can put their trust and their faith in has failed this year. Okay? And those that haven't failed are about to. Okay? I don't say that in ring on the bank. Look at the budgets we've just seen. Okay? They are stretched to the maximum. Okay? The government is trying to be the answer. But God wants the world to know that your governments can never be the answer. Only Jesus Christ can be the answer to everything that we're seeing going on. There is nothing else. Okay? There is nothing else. So we begin to go, right, okay, if discipleship isn't, it's not alone, it's all of our job, then how does it happen? Because the other thing that we've kind of created with the church model a little bit is this thing that discipleship happens once the pastor gets somebody saved. Right? Okay? But I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm in this to do what Jesus did. You know the old WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, what about we look at what Jesus did, okay? Jesus didn't go around going, right, okay, do you believe in him? Do you believe in me? Come on then. He actually went and started discipling people before they made a decision. He discipled people unto conversion and from conversion further. He didn't wait until they'd gone, I'm going to follow you. Look at the story of Peter. So many times we get confused when we read about Peter and we look at Peter in the Bible and we go, well, Jesus walked up to him and said, get out your boat and follow me. And he leapt out of the boat and came. But when you look chronologically at the story of this, you'll actually know that was about the fourth or fifth time that Peter had spent time with Jesus. His brother Andrew, he was, he was a disciple of John. And John sent him to Jesus. And John, Andrew went and got Peter and goes, you've got to come and meet this bloke. He's awesome. Right? And not in the standard terms today, but in the actual biblical term of he is truly awesome, right? We forget that discipleship doesn't have to be, okay, now I'll disciple you. That's not biblical. It's not in here. The biblical model is we come alongside people. And the discipleship journey is every step that we can help somebody take that takes them out of the life that they were living, wherever we find them, whatever the circumstances that that life has put them in, closer to Jesus. And that doesn't matter which side of the cross they're on at that point in time, as long as they're getting closer to Jesus. When they get to the point where they're at the cross and they cross over into an eternal life in the kingdom of God, then yet we want to continue, just as every one of you should be, to continue to grow in our love and our relationship and our engagement with Jesus. Every day I want to know him a little bit more. Every day I want to see how my life. Yeah? But I'm this side of the cross. Okay? I know I'm forgiven. As Brett said this morning, I'm still unworthy, but I'm forgiven. And boy, I'm glad that his grace is on you every morning. But that doesn't mean that everybody we meet, every person on the face of this planet is referred to when God says he wants all to be saved. It doesn't matter your opinion of them. Because quite frankly, your opinion of those people doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is the opinion of God the Father. 
right? The opinion of a loving father who looks down at his children and says, you know, you might be doing the wrong thing, but I love you anyway. How many parents have we got in the room? Got a few? Do you stop loving your kids because they're being brats? You stop liking them as much, maybe, but you don't stop loving them, do you? Yeah? Our loving father's no different. Yeah, he wants to give them a swift kick in the backside, but that's not because he wants them to suffer where they are. It's because he wants them to get back on track. Yeah? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my command. We were commanded to make disciples. We were commanded to go out there. Now I'm going to jump to Revelations. Not going to try and bring the mood down too much, don't worry. Boom. Um, Revelations 12. I'm going to read from verse 10, and it says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Verse 11 says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. We heard a testimony this morning. Do you know that if you want to start discipling someone, God has already given you the perfect tool to start doing that? And that's the story of your own life and Jesus' impact in it. That's all you need. Yeah? You don't need some mythical four-year training course or degree or anything like that. You just need to be able to share the truth of what Jesus has done in your life and how it's turned around. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey. Now, the truth is I started a little bit further northeast of here than Ellenbrook. Um, the northeast of Scotland, to be exact. And... Uh, I grew up in uh, a small town on the outskirts of a city called Aberdeen. Some of you may have heard of it. It's known as the Granite City where I come from. because it's almost entirely made out of gray granite, which also means it is one of the most radioactive cities in the world. Because the ambient radioactive nature of granite gives it a higher average radiation. So if you think, there's a few funny things about me. <laughs> Unfortunately, but I grew up in a small town, and Aberdeen's a little bit, it's the oil capital of Europe, so it's very resources-based. It's very resources-centric, a lot of fly-in, fly-out workers, the same kind of lifestyles that you see in and around Perth. Weather's a little bit different, but apart from that... Um, but I grew up in a family. I'm a middle child of three boys, so that's where some of my other problems come from. Um, parents who have been married and are still married, which I know is unusual in this day and age, but yep, they've, they've been married all my life. But not really what you would have called Christian upbringing, okay? When I was little, and uh, I was about probably about four or five, 
my parents did the let's take our children to church and put them to kind of going into the Sunday school and things like that. Because they actually believed, just because they thought it was the thing they were supposed to do to teach morals and kind of ethics into their children, and it was more out of that, and it was expected of them to a degree, rather than any faith. There was no faith driven. And eventually my dad realized that this church thing was clashing with his tea time, and so he eventually dropped out, and my mom carried on taking us for a while, and then she kind of said, well, look, there's lots going on. You boys are getting older and harder to handle, so let's, let's just not. Um, then when I was about 12 years old, I remember it distinctly. There was my uncle, actually, who lives here in Perth, was over visiting. And so as a result, the whole family had said, right, okay, he was a Christian. He was a, he was a pastor in a church at the time. He came over and everybody said, okay, as a family, we're all going to go to church. And we decided to go to this other church. And it was interesting because... Instead of it being old traditional churches, of which there are hundreds and thousands where I come from, um, you know, the ones with the wooden pews and everything else, it, it, was, it was different. It was a modern building. There were a bunch of people in there that were singing songs that weren't from the 1800s. There was, there was stuff going on, and there was a sense and a feeling in that place where I now look back and realize for the first time I was experiencing what a true community of believers looked like. Something that struck me. But that church was miles away from where I lived, unfortunately. And uh, as a 12-year-old, they, they apparently don't like you going off on your own and journeying around. And my parents weren't interested in going every week. So that was merely a faint kind of memory that was there. And then a few months later... I got a different offer. When you're a 12-year-old kid, you want to fit in. Kids, you want to be where everybody's at. You want to do what's going on. You want to be the type of person that people will look to and call upon, all that kind of stuff. And where I grew up, that meant that you needed two things. You needed to have a skateboard, okay? And you needed to hang around at the skate deck, where the skate park was. Ours was one of the first towns in the whole of Scotland to have its own skate park because the fundraising was actually led by my brother and a bunch of people. this big skate bowl, and that's where we all hung out. And it was there that I received a different offer. All the kids were hanging out, and I was allowed to go down there as a 12-year-old as long as my brother was around and that kind of thing. We grew up in a small country town in Scotland, so people didn't even lock their doors back then. Um, and for the younger ones, this is pre the internet, so we didn't actually have Wi-Fi or anything like that. There was no mobile phones, none of that kind of stuff. So when we went out, I hope he out, you had no way of knowing where we were or what we were up to until such time as we returned home. And on that fateful day, they were all hanging around, and somebody put his hand out to me. And I went, oh, what's this? Everybody else is doing it. I'm just going to join in. And that was the first time that I smoked pot, but it wasn't the last. I was once asked when I was speaking in a youth group, have you ever been stoned? And I had to give the honest answer, yes, for a decade. That began a chapter of my life where I went down a road where that became an everyday occurrence for me from the age of 12. Right the way through to the point that by the age of about 15, I'd figured out that trying to get enough money out of my folks to get as much as I wanted was difficult. 
So I started figuring out how I could make more money and the easy way was actually to that led to other doors because I was now in good relationship with most of the drug dealers in the area. And as a result, that opened doors into acid and ecstasy speed and all these other different things, which by 16, I was dealing all across the local school. And my folks kind of figured something was up. So they decided my dad had gone off to work. Um, he was in the oil industry. He was a big executive in the oil industry, but he had to go and work in Nigeria for a few years and all three of them. Let's send that one to boarding school. And so that's what happened. My brother stayed at home and I went off to boarding school. However, when I got to boarding school, I suddenly realized, hang on a second, rather than this interfering with my fun, I've just been given a whole new customer base with more money than the last lot. I was there for about a year and yeah, things deteriorated. I decided that I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I told my parents they could either remove me or I'd have myself thrown out. And I returned to the local academy school where business was booming. And somehow I made it through the next year of my schooling. I don't really remember a lot about it, but I did. And then into the next year, eventually the school came to me and they said, look, you know something? There's, there's actually not a lot of point. And I was like, what do you mean? I was doing great at school. I was still getting reasonably good grades. God had gifted me with a great mind that regardless of how stoned it was, I was still passing everything. And um, they just said, look, you're just disrupting every class you're in. You're not, you're not actually, we actually think it's better for everybody else if you leave. And so that was my final days of school. I didn't actually finish. That began a little bit of a journey the old folks' homes, I was the lucky person that got to clean the sheets. Um, from there, I got to clean the floors, and then I ended up being a care assistant working in that business. And just working through, trying to do stuff, just trying to, I didn't really care, because as long as I had money coming in so that I could go out and party at the weekend and nobody really cared too much about what I was doing, I was quite happy. And that's kind of the journey that my life went on for quite some time. But it got worse and worse. December of 2018, I found myself at the point where I'd been in and out of some pretty rubbishy jobs. In fact, no, go back a little bit. Um, back in um, 1997, sorry, 96, I um, realized that I had to do something. I was under pressure from my folks to get somewhere and get something done. So I decided, right, okay, I'll go to university. So I couldn't figure out whatever else I wanted to do, so I picked a degree in computing and business because I figured, well, there's always going to be business and there's always going to be computers from here on out, so that's good bet. I'll just do that. And so I did. Breezed through the first year of university. Um, in fact, it amazes me because Nathan's now doing the same stuff at school as I did at my first year of university. So breezed through that got into the second year, and I'm partway through the second year. And that's with something that fundamentally, for the final time, shifted my life. So, you remember I mentioned when I was 12, I started smoking pot. Well, one of the things that I had back then was I had this amazing best friend. He was about a year younger than me, and he was one of these kids that even though I was well over on the wrong, pardon me, the wrong side of the tracks, he was like this angelic, pure kid that you just couldn't, you couldn't take him off. 
Didn't matter what you did. He was not going to be swayed. And he and I were best mates, and we had been since we were about three years old. Um, but when he was 14, he went on holiday. His parents, unfortunately, had split up. And he went on holiday with his dad to Spain. And he got a tiny little cut in the end of his finger. And his dad, being his dad, thought, I know what I'll do. You've got to wash out a cut, because that's what we're shut out, make sure there's nothing in it. Unfortunately, in Spain, the worst thing you can do is wash a cut under the tap. He got an infection that went into his system. And over the next three weeks, they, the doctors tried to chase down the source of this infection. And it went right the way through his system, shutting down one organ after another, after another, after another. Until that was my first encounter, real encounter, with shocking death. Yeah? There was somebody who, whilst I'm doing all the wrong stuff, he's not doing anything wrong at all. And yet he was the one who died. And that begins to mess with your head, and you begin to think about things a little bit. Now, unfortunately, back then, that would just drive me to take more drugs, to drink more, to do all that kind of stuff, because I don't want to think about it. I don't want to do that. I want to get immersed. I want to get away from all that stuff. When I was 17, I received a phone call. And this phone call was from my cousin. Beautiful girl I woke, I'd grown up with. She's a year younger than me. We used to be in the same year at school. Um, but she ended up getting held back because she just wasn't ready for it. But we've, and in my family, we grew up like we were brothers and sisters rather than cousins because we were so close-knit. My mum and her sisters were so close-knit. We lived almost in each other's pockets, always at each other's houses. And I received this phone call, and she just said, Bobby, I think I need your help. I said, okay, what's wrong? And she said, I've just taken 40 paracetamol, and I don't know how long I've got left to live. So I jumped in my car, well, my father's car, so I knew it was going to get where I wanted it to go. I took off up the road. I got to her house, and her parents are there, and she's freaking out in the bedroom. And she, I'm like, so what's going on? Have you told your folks? She's like, no, no. So I'm like, right, okay. And my brain immediately just clicked into emergency mode. I got a bunch of problems. Which one do I deal with first? And the first problem was, this girl needs to get to hospital. So I went in. I was polite to her parents. I said, me and Lucy are just going out. We'll see you later. I grabbed her, got her in the car, because I them. They're going to spike, get so emotional, everything else, freak out. All that's going to do is slow us down in getting where we need to be. So I didn't tell them. I got her in the car, and I drove probably a little bit faster than I should have. A lot faster than is legal. Um, and in Scotland, we don't have these big, wide roads that you've got over here. And all our speeds are in miles per hour, so we're doing about 50% faster than you guys are anyway. Um, and I really began to click on how serious this was, because we walked in. You know when you go to A&E, you walk in, and you've actually got to stop, and they get you to wait, and you don't get to go in, and you've got to sit there for ages, waiting while all the drunks are ferried through and all that kind of stuff? Oh, no, not today. We went to the desk. We told them what was wrong. We had barely taken a step away from the desk, and they said, can you come with us? We went straight through, and she spent the next little while getting her stomach pumped. From there, she was flown to Edinburgh, and she was further pumped. I remember distinctly what happened. Once I had got her in the hospital and I got her settled down, then I thought, right, now I can tell her parents. 
Now that that's handled, now I can tell them. And I phoned them and I said, look, I've got to be honest with you, this is what's going on. And so, of course, they jumped in the car, they got straight to the hospital, and they came in and they looked straight at me. And her mother looked me straight in the eye and said, haven't you done enough? I think you should go. And I was like, okay. So I left. Then came the second year of uni. And we'd taken some time out. I'd gone around to a mate's flat. Uh, he used to be my former flatmate before I'd gone back to uni. And I'd gone around to visit him at his flat. And he had just moved into a new flat with his girlfriend. And we were painting the walls and everything else. And because he'd been painting and doing all these things, we thought, right, okay. We'll just go and dump all the paint up because we were smoking pot as you. Um, we, were, we were putting stuff up there uh, into the attic. Now, I don't know if you know the kind of tenement flat style buildings they have in the UK. Basically, the scenario is this. You've got about three or four levels with two flats, one on either side, a central staircase, and in the bottom, they've got a basement area. And in the basement area, you've got allocated spots for every different flat so they can store stuff. And then they've got a shared attic. Now, it turned out that my flat directly below him, who'd gone missing a month beforehand. And this was a guy who was on day release from a psychiatric unit. And so they were being checked. And they come and they checked and they'd interviewed all the neighbors and they'd gone through all the place. And so we thought, right, OK. So we were just taking the pot, paint pots. And me and my little brother were walking down the stairs away from here. Um, and I'd left them to put them up in, up in the attic. And I just get this shout. Bobby, you need to come here a second. We're seeing is what we're seeing, and we're not just really high. And so I walk back up the stairs, and I'm like, right, okay, and get to the top of the stairs. And I hate heights. Right? It might sound really stupid for somebody who's over six foot, but I hate heights. I, I just don't like them. So... When you go up to the attic, you've got like a ladder that you pull out from the wall. So directly behind where I am is the main gap down the center of the stairwell. So my brain is, I'm just going to focus on the ladder. I'm going to get up there, and I'll have a look when I get up there, because otherwise this ain't happening. So I did that. Boom, boom, boom. I'm up. And I find myself standing right in the attic, and I moved in. And about a foot and a half to two feet in front of me is the neighbor from downstairs. He's still hanging from the rafters. And um, yet you get confronted. Boom. What's this about? That shock meant that I didn't spend much more time at uni that year. I decided to call it, drop out, and did what I always did when I had a problem. I went to the pub, and then I went and got high and tried to not think about it. But the problem is, when God's actually trying to get your attention, it doesn't matter how drunk you get or how high you get. Ape him when he wants to get your attention. You see, because the interesting thing is, through all this going on, at the time I couldn't see it. But now I can't deny it. That God had his hand on things and was maneuvering. Because every time I was dealing, the police never came near me. Every time I'd taken a break from dealing, the police raided my house. So they never got me. Had they caught me, I wouldn't be standing here. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not justice. Why, where's God in that? Where's... 
But you see, God is more interested in our hearts making it into heaven than he is in ticking some legal box to conform for the world. It's an interesting thing about God. It's more important to him that our souls are saved and we're fully redeemed than anything else. I began to spiral from there, from that point. And by 1998, not 2018, in 1998, I was in an apartment living with a friend, council house. I had rented a room for him, from him. I had a mattress on the floor. And we used to, I used to go off. I was driving a delivery truck for fire extinguishers and things like that. And that was what I did. And I would go there and I'd go home. The same uncle who'd been the one that had brought us to that church 12 years ago, he came to visit from Australia. And he said, look, I know you're not talking to your family anymore. I've been cut off. There was no communication with my family at all. Um, in fact, Christmas Day, 1998, the only communication I had with my family was my elder brother rocked up, dropped off some presents and said the bit right away from the rest of us. Don't turn up for Christmas. Leave us to have a great day. Just stay away. And so I did. I went back into the living room, sat down, and drank and smoked and whatever else I could do. A couple of days later, my uncle said, look, I know you're in a tough place, but I haven't seen you for years. Would you mind coming? And I said, okay. I'll come. And there was a big condition is, wherever I sit is in the opposite side of the building from the rest of my family. And he said, that's okay. I just want to see you. And he spoke to me and he said, I know you're going through a really tough place. How about you come to Australia? He said, why don't you just take a break from this whole place and just come to Australia for a while? Come and you can visit. And the interesting thing is, else had known is the only recurring dream I'd ever had in my life was of a place with golden beaches, bright sunshine, and all these different things. A place that I didn't know where it was or what was going on until neighbors came on TV. And we got to see neighbors and home and away, and I began to connect the place in my dreams with an actual physical place on the planet. And now here was an offer to go to that place that I'd always dreamt about. And so even in the debt was, with an invite from a family member who I hardly knew, Something in me leapt at the opportunity. I think it was about five months later, I had got my visa approved, my working holiday visa, and I came out here for what would be the most incredible 15 months of my life. I got on a plane, I arrived, and of course, it left Scotland. Only now I'm surrounded by all these people with funny accents. And um, carrying on, but, but, but now the thing is, I don't have suppliers. Hi, princess. I love you. Um, I don't have any suppliers. I don't have any connections. I don't have any of this stuff. All I've got is my family that I'm with. Now, my uncle was uh, QC at the time, and, but he was also the pastor of a lot. I was taught, brought up with respect and through all these kind of channels. So I thought... I'm staying with the guy. He's got me all the way to Australia. I'll, I'll just go to church and attend with him. When I got there, I met a youth pastor. 
Now, this youth pastor had come out of Teen Challenge himself and was a former heroin addict. And uh, is still a good friend of ours, was the MC at our wedding, actually. And so he jokes to the fact that he actually had me axe ministry before I'd made a decision for Jesus Christ. Because I found someone I could connect with. I found someone who could walk beside me, who understood who I was and where I'd been, who understood everything that was going through my head and was able to have a conversation with me without going, have you made a decision yet? You see, when I talk about discipleship unto conversion, I talk about it as somebody who is in the kingdom today because that's what happened to me. He walked alongside me. He blessed me. He'd pick, we'd go abseiling and do all this kind of stuff. We'd take kids on retreats to get them to stop smoking, and the only person who stopped smoking was me. And um, we did all these kind of things, right? Bibleman track and all these things. And then on the 28th of July, sorry, the 25th of July in the year 1999, I was staying in a house in Mount Helena called Berea. And in that house at the back, in a room that was built on that house, purposefully to be the church building. And in that house, and I'm, I'm there, and I just feel this presence. And I know, because I've been around this stuff long enough, that this must be God. And in that space, I'm feeling the pressure of the recognition of all of the sin that's been in my life. See, I've, I've read a few bits of the Bible because I've been going. I scored 9 out of 10 first time. Not in a good way. Then I read when Jesus ups the ante on the Ten Commandments, and I think, I nailed it. I got 100%. Right? And I'm in that space, and I just felt God lay his hand on me, and I knew there and then that this moment I had to make a decision. But I also knew the decision was mine. And right there in that space, I just dropped on my knees. And I said, God, forgive me for who I am and what I've done. Forgive me for the life that I've led that's taken me through all the darkness and all the sin and all these bits and pieces that to the point where even in that space, I was considered a nice guy. And I look at it and I go, how could you be considered a nice guy and do all that stuff? And as I knelt there, I arrive as warm, liquid light being poured over my head, dripping down across my entire body. And the incredible sensation that I will never forget of it just flowing over me and literally just dripping down. And I, it was an incredible experience. But I knew then something had changed. So instantly. I didn't have a road to Damascus experience like some people talk of. There was still a long, long journey. Just ask my wife. Um, but I had the most amazing first week in the kingdom. You see, on the Tuesday, I got a phone call from Warren. Warren Harvey, if any of you have met him. Um, he was the youth pastor that led me into Christ. Um, I got a phone call to give you a car. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, yeah, you've been, they've got this car and they're, it's just sitting there. They're not doing anything with it. And they said, you can have it to use for as long as you want. It was a Mitsubishi Sigma. You know those? Huge engine. They were great. I could get it sideways out of the driveway. 
Um, it was awesome fun. So I had that, but first and foremost, we had to change out the battery. The battery was rubbish. So on the Wednesday, and we go to a place called Cornerstone, and we rock up. Because I've been changing the battery, I'm not a mechanic. right? I can do lots of things, but don't ask me to fix your car unless you want to cost you more. Um, but we're changing out this battery, and I managed to spill battery acid all over myself. Right? And so we go, to, we go to this place called Cornerstone, and this was kind of the outreach place for the church that we were in. And there, looking after all the children, place is this young lady called Nadia Bennett and uh, we met for the first time while she was ministering and looking after children and of course we had to cut short the conversation because the longer I stayed there the less I was wearing and so it was kind of like you, you had a certain amount of time you could talk and then you had to disappear or it was going to get really dangerous um, on the Thursday I got a phone call I got offered a job but I hadn't told anybody I was running out of money just this phenomenal sequence of events. And I'm not going to pretend that when you step into a kingdom, it's all suddenly really rosy. You kind of get this period where that's how it feels. But when you've been in the darkness, standing in the light is just an amazing feeling. You know, when you've been in the shadow and you walk into the light and you suddenly feel it's really nice and warm and everything else. That's what it's like when you step into the kingdom the first time. But then, then the wind and you go, ah, actually there is a chill of the wind and all the other things. Well, that's, that's what's happened. We've had an amazing... Uh, I proposed in December of that year. We were married in May of the following year. Then we went back to Scotland. And the interesting thing was, when I got on that, when I got on that plane to go back to Scotland, I was suddenly struck with a question. And I, I don't know if it was a question from the devil or a question from God. And I'll explain. I was on that plane the whole time in Australia living in a community of believers. People who didn't just read a book and talk about mythology, who actually believed in the Jesus Christ that the book talks about, and they lived it in every moment of every day of their lives in the way that they interacted, in the way that they spoke, in the way that they acted, in who they interacted with. And now I was getting on a plane to go back to the place where I didn't know anyone like that, except my wife. And I heard this question, is your faith really yours or is it borrowed from those around you? Do you really believe or are you just living on the hype of a bunch of people who do? It was a confronting question for me. It was a question that terrified me. The next three to four years of our life were about me finding out the answer. Because I was taught and I was told about this Savior Jesus who had come to redeem me from my sin and set me free. But those that were teaching me forgot to teach me that he was also supposed to be Lord of my life. It's one thing to be set free from your sin. It's another to suddenly realize, lay it all down because you did. I'm going to give it all back to you. And I had to journey through fighting all the drugs and all that kind of stuff and beginning to fight through till I made a full choice that said, I'm not just going to believe in you and have you wash me every morning because I've had a really bad night the night before. I'm actually going to start living a life where I'm going to start laying down one by one all the different parts of my life 
And I ain't finished yet. Better. I'm not finished yet. I'm not complete. I'm not perfect. As I say, just ask the beautiful redhead, not Max, the other one. Um, but Jesus Christ changed my life. He fundamentally transformed how I saw myself, how I looked at the world around me. I no longer have to hide in the things that this world provides, free in the gift of God. There is no greater gift, there is no greater thing that can happen in your life than accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord of your life. When you get to the point where you move from going, I'm going to figure out how I can do what I want, to God, what do you want me to do? It's transforming every aspect of who you are. You know, that was the same when every one of us had to ask ourselves the question, do I worship on a Sunday because I rock up to church or because I believe in God? Because those who believe in God kept on worshiping regardless of whether services were on or not. Those who believed in God keep doing it regardless of whether something gets put on the calendar by Grace Life. You do it because it's who you are and where you are and what you're called to. Yeah? Jesus loves you. If he can do what he, where I've been from and what I've done, and I only scratched the surface and kept it kind of PG rated because there's kids in the room. But the story's worse. I've watched people get stabbed. I've seen people die. I've seen people hung left, right, and center on trees growing up because they just couldn't handle what was going on around them. But God chose me. I look at these stories and I say, there but for the grace of God go I. I don't know why he chose me choice and the same choice is yours I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head because it doesn't matter where you're at what you've done or what you think of yourself it doesn't even matter what you see when you look in the mirror your father in heaven loves you he loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ as a demonstration of the power of his love to be here, to serve, to bless, and to ultimately die for your sins. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.